This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It is Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad. And we are back talking about Bill 7, the law that allows hospitals to send patients who no longer need to be in hospital to nursing homes they haven't chosen. The law also requires hospitals to charge patients who don't consent 400 bucks a day. That's one way to get consent, I guess. Last week, the minister gave us some numbers. 2,400 Ontario patients have been dispatched this way, and he's pretty satisfied. But according to Kathy Barrick, the CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario, the changes won't take pressure off the hospital system because the individuals who've been waiting in the community for a long-term care placement have now been bumped far down the list, with available spots being taken by ALC patients being moved out of hospital. And uh, I guess that inevitably leads to more patients from the community getting into hospital. Anyway, uh, I'd like to hear from our audience as well. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined in studio by both David Kravitz and Bill Van Gorder, and remotely, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hi, guys. Hi, Hi everyone. Let us begin with David. So uh, do you agree with that analysis that now it's almost impossible to get into a long-term care uh, home from the community? Well, it was before. I mean, there's a waiting list before. I don't know how you're worse off. Um now if you're you moved to, further down because well I don't the, I don't understand the move further down. I don't know whether that it was presented in the article as if that was like a requirement that I moved somebody over there and everybody moves down a pace. But if I'm located in southern Ontario and I have filed a list of five long-term care homes that I'm waiting for and by definition I couldn't get in that's why I'm waiting. Uh how is my position made worse by moving somebody from because maybe if that if that spot opens up, they will move somebody out of hospital first. Maybe, but um, how many spots are open? I mean, it was interesting that the ministry, which gave that twenty four hundred figure, didn't say how many of them had moved, how far, how many of them were in northern Ontario. <laughs> interesting in or uh, typical. <laughs> It makes their own life harder. I don't know why they wouldn't provide those numbers because they look bad without those numbers. Well, yeah, it, and it doesn't say uh, how many people exactly went to places they didn't want to go to or anything like that. So, um, yeah, they they are not looking very good on this whole thing. It really is uh, changing the deck chairs on the Titanic and just moving moving things around doesn't solve uh, the problem at all. And I think it's quite possible that those people who uh, were on the waiting list at a certain level now find that if people are being bumped out of hospital and above them, there won't be enough uh, spaces for them to come in as quickly as they had hoped to. Bottom line is there just aren't enough, uh, there aren't enough beds. So we don't want people staying in hospital longer than they have to. I'm sure they don't want to stay in hospital longer than uh, uh, they have to, but they need to be moved someplace where they're going to get uh, care with dignity and the ability to uh, still have the family supports that they, that they need. Uh, and I think that's the big piece the government is always missing, not understanding that the care is not just given in the hospital or in long-term care homes. It's given by family and friends who come in regularly, who give the care. And if they're making the move uh, out of the area where those people can conveniently get to, then the, their quality of care is going to go down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, people, 
Peter, does that make sense to you that people will be, it makes sense to me. I mean, first of all, what are there, 38,000 people on waiting lists? And uh, if they're trying to, if the priority is to get people out of the hospital, then uh, I think they they get uh, the beds as they come up. Uh, that would make sense. Yeah, and and that seems to um, <clears throat> that seems to be how it's working. Um, what what I don't understand though is is like um, you know when I, when I had an elderly mother or um, aunt I was looking after, you know they they sometimes had to go to hospital, but they did, they didn't just stay in hospital forever. You know, like when when they were when the doctor deemed them to be alternative level of care, uh, we took them home or we found you know, a nursing home for them. So, like, what I don't understand is why there are so many patients just sort of lingering in hospital. Are they, do they not have families? I'm, I'm not being, I'm, I'm trying not to be um, rude here, but but is is there no one looking after them? Like, are, are they just sort of perpetually Well, you know, uh, probably. Uh, a lot of older people, it was interesting, you know, in the New York Times, they did a story in this in the States, and I've done, demographic stories, a lot of older people live by themselves. Just last week with uh, the uh, the social connection study said uh, a huge number of people in Toronto basically said they have no one. 300,000 people in Toronto said they have no one they can wow. turn to. Wow. Uh, that's extrapolated numbers. Right. So, so yes, the answer, Peter, I think is that no, they don't have family or their family doesn't have the wherewithal to care for them. Because right. if you imagine a family, a uh, lower income family where you've got, you know, maybe single mothers working two jobs and taking care of kids, how are they going to take care of an older person yeah. at home? So, David? The, the, oh, go ahead. But the the government is saying and the hospitals are saying these patients can't just stay forever, right? So well, yeah, and they should. It's not good for the patients no, to stay no. forever, but yeah. it's also not good for them to go either a place that is inconvenient for their family if they have it, or a place that has a very bad care record. Right. Yeah. It just seems insoluble. Like he, on on the one hand, I can see the need to sort of free up um, these beds and get these patients to the to the, their proper level of care. And then on the other hand, um, you know, it seems very heavy-handed manner in which they're doing it. So um, I, I, I just, like, I, I'm somewhere in the middle on this. I'm, I'm not entirely against Bill 7, but, um, you know, I, 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 I wonder about the heavy-handedness of it. Well, um Peter, it's not the only thing that they're heavy-handed about. I mean, we've been on on our municipal day. We've been talking about the new municipal legislation uh, and strong mayor powers with the surprise thing about minority rule, and uh, you know that those are pretty heavy-handed as well. (laughs) And they may also affect the demographic. Uh, I mean, yes, they they have to find. I mean, this. ALC, so-called problem, has been around for decades. Decades. And yes, there has to be a solution to it. But, you know, the the one thing that people are asking is, like, why is it our elders that always seem to be paying the price? Don't forget, and we seem to have forgotten what happened in COVID in nursing homes, David. Well, I think that's true, and I think that the the um, the absence of a coherent policy in the first place, number one, and number two, the absence of consistent and coherent data in the second place, makes it almost impossible to wrap your arms around it because you can criticize it from every angle and you can defend it from multiple angles. So, for example, I have a question, and I don't know. I mean, in my ignorance, without this, what was it that? brought the ALC people into the hospital in the first place. In contrast with someone, let's say, with dementia, we know that two-thirds of the people in nursing homes have dementia. Okay. Well, if no, you, I think a lot of the ALC patients also have dementia. I got it, but, yeah. uh, but, but now he's in the hospital. So he wasn't at home with his dementia or she, with their dementia, physically okay, physically healthy, but with dementia. Now they're inside. What brought them into the hospital in the first place? I'll, 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 I'll give you my bets, 
and they are falls. Right. Okay. Yeah. So and there's an injury. Falls there's... and maybe COVID and right. now flu okay. and right. RSV. Those are those are. So now there's a medical reason that uh, that made it necessary for them to be in that hospital, and now they can't leave that hospital because they can't. They have go nowhere back to, to go. Home. They can't go back home. But where did they come from initially? Second thing is, in the normal running of a nursing home, there's a waiting list. Is that waiting list strictly 100% first come, first serve? Or is it, wait a minute, you were kind of next in line, but this guy has even got a more severe need than you do, even though he wasn't in a hospital or anybody getting bumped from non-hospital people. Well, I know that the there is more. some kind know. of provision for emergency Right, right. Something happens. Uh, Bill, can you shed any light on that? No, you're you're right. There, there, there is a provision where uh, the decision can be made uh, by the uh, by the discharge process, which is what we probably should be talking about in terms of the risk. But there is a, a process whereby uh, a judgment is made of who is, has the most need for that particular room, and they get the they get the room first. But there's also a waiting. There's also a waiting list, and there's many people uh, rated at the same level. So sure. uh, I think it's unusual to have somebody who is so severely in need that they're automatically bumped up right to the top, except for this new system, which seems to be saying well, no, we're I going to do it. Well, no, I think that there, you can have emergencies in the community, and yes, no. it— it, I mean, I would imagine that it's something like if somebody is living at home and they're okay and suddenly uh, they practically set the house on fire, you got to get them out of there. Yeah, but the point I'm saying is I could get bumped if I'm on a waiting list. I've got my top five preferred yeah. homes, which makes me on the waiting list. I filed my, my request. I'm waiting. I'm about to get a room. And I get bumped, not from a hospital, but from the community because mm -hmm. somebody else came in with a greater need. So that could be happening as well. So that for yeah. what I'm saying is it's complicated and it's not helped by the lack of clarity and data and what are the procedures and what are the exceptions. So you can't really get your arms wrapped around it except the government by its lack of transparency always seems to figure out a way to make it worse. <laughs> Yeah. With unerring accuracy. <laughs> Sorry. There, there, there Sorry. aren't enough beds. Right. Uh, there are not enough supports in the uh, uh, community. Remember that uh, uh, surveys have shown that up to 20% of the people who are in long-term care homes at the moment don't need to be there and wouldn't need to be there if there were proper supports, very simple supports often in the community uh, for them. If we could move 20% of the people back into the community, uh, it would free up all kinds of beds that would be available. Well, yeah, I don't understand. I mean, I guess it's maybe they're just dealing with the emergency part of the system, but the the fixes, and if you ask them, they will rattle off and reannounce some numbers additional for home care, but it it doesn't seem to get down to that. No, and what's happening in the article uh, that we read for this show, Libby, really the one telling point that jumped out at me that I hadn't thought of before was, if you really want to get into a nursing home, get yourself into a hospital first. Yeah, that was kind of new to me that yeah. now I don't I don't accuse people of being irresponsible about that. But nevertheless, you really don't have a good pathway off the waiting list if you stay in the community. Your best way to get off the waiting list is to get yourself into a hospital. I think one of the doctors, I think it was Samir Singh, asked, yeah. asked the healthcare officials, would you agree with me that if you're advising somebody what to do, pack your suitcase and go to an emergency room? That way you can get into you can get off the waiting list, and they agreed yes. And if that's true, then that's just outrageous. Yeah, just outrageous. I mean, it's just here's how to game the system, folks. Well, I mean, yeah, and don't forget there there are a lot of um, older people that end up in emergency with all kinds of things. I mean, I remember before my mother in law was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And she was living alone in, in her home in Peterborough. Um, she kept having um, 
what she thought were heart issues. I remember we even took her to a cardiologist and they were panic attacks, which I guess are common mm-hmm. uh, as part, as part of yes, it. Right. Yes, yes. But, uh, you know, she, she would have a panic attack and, and she would have multiple visits to emergency. There are, you can ask emergencies. There are all kinds of people there who keep coming back with, all kinds of things. Yep. Uh, oh, let us take a call from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. I've been there on exactly this issue. Uh, you know, it's a while ago, but my father fell, broke his hip, and um, then was in East General for six months before he finally got moved uh, down to Bridgepoint or whatever it was called then, and they uh, and died two weeks later. But it's a real problem. I mean, the one thing that the hospital was happy about was that my father had semi-private hospital uh, coverage. Um, but otherwise, we just had to wait, and he couldn't go into a regular home because he couldn't swallow properly. So uh, I, I'm not sure there's an easy solution to this one other than build more long-term care homes. Uh, well, yeah, mm-hmm. they're apparently doing that, and it's not, still not going to be enough. Well, the other piece that's come along... And it's interesting, I know a number of people who have taken this route is now made. And, uh, I mean, we can say that's terrible, and the unfortunate thing is you have to be uh, with it in order to take that way out of this world. But uh, uh, you would be surprised at the number of people who are making that decision. Uh, You're right, I would be. Um, Yeah. Okay, Pat, thanks for that. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a conundrum. But again, you know, it, is it the easy thing? Just um, you know, warehouse the old people somewhere else. Yeah, that's a that's a term that uh, many of us have been using because that's what, when you're moving people around without uh, without uh, consultation, without their uh, involvement. That's exactly you're just finding a place to put them uh, rather than uh, discovering what's the best place uh, for them to be. And, uh, you know, to say that we're not forcing them out, but we're going to charge them $400 a day if they stay in the hospital. I mean, what, what could be more pressure than that? I'm, I, I, I find that uh, ludicrous that they would say that's not pressure. Uh, I, I'd like to read from an email that we got on this subject. And he said that his wife is registered for long-term care, and he is worried that she might be bumped because of these changes. Uh, uh, and uh, he does stay at home and care for her uh, and is also helped by a PSW. My wife is 76 and I am a healthy 78, but the care I give her is horrendously difficult. We've been married 67 years. Wow. Wow. And to put her in a home would be difficult. Now, PSW time is like gold. I get six hours a week, and sometimes they don't show. I shower, clothes, feed, dress, change her personal apparel, which is frequent, clean, laundry shop, remove knobs from the stove as she turns them on to warm her hands, and have alarms on the doors as she wanders. I do not grudge or complain, but when she has no understanding of what I say, what else can I do? I'm afraid that I will take ill and not be able to care for her or not be able to visit when she's in a home. Um, It says people have no idea the stress caregivers are under. And again, it's a situation where you have older caregivers caring. Who are themselves vulnerable. Right. Who are themselves vulnerable. Yeah. And that's, you know, unfortunately, that's not an unusual story. We hear that kind of uh, comment from people uh, uh, very uh, regularly. The, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the people who are not being recognized, who are being forgotten in this whole discussion are the caregivers. The pressure that's on them, this, this man who doesn't know whether or not 
uh, his wife is now going to be able to get into a home if she's going to be bumped. Even even if that's not true, the worry and extra pressure on him when he was finally beginning to see some light at the end of his tunnel, and now this doubt comes out. That's tremendous uh, uh, pressure, and the mental health of our caregivers suffers because of it. Yeah, she's going to be bumped in his. You know, in he's our worried that she's going because to be. of the ALC problem. It's bad right. enough I'm waiting because there's not enough beds. I'm waiting. I got and that. And they say, well, she's at home and she's she's got she's six high. hours of PSW plus a husband who loves her. Has anybody looked at creating more uh, like a bridge alternative um, to, to ALC? I mean, why can't they move them into an equivalent of ALC somewhere else? They do. Yeah. I mean, that's what Bridgepoint and, and those other places are. They're They're kind of like... You know, you recuperate. Rehab. Or, They're or, like a yeah, rehab, rehab place. Or until they can find a spot, you know. So so these places do exist, but there aren't there aren't enough of them. And um, they obviously can't handle the, the overflow. Well, yeah. And I remember, uh, was it a year or two ago, they opened up some hospitals that had been closed for that purpose. Mm-hmm. But, you know... Uh, the big issue is it's not the bed, it's the staff. staff. Yeah. So uh, they probably don't have enough of these places, but also they don't have people to staff them. That's the big, that's probably the answer right there. Yeah. Yeah. Because you could create a physical facility if you could get the people to look after them. Yeah. Or if you had more staff so you could give them the the home care PSU time uh, and the respite time for the caregivers who many probably could continue if they had more more assistance right in their own home but without uh, uh, without enough staff and that you know bottom line of the whole problem and it, you know it would seem to some of us who who aren't health experts, but uh, which would be easier, waiting till we build new, very expensive, uh, more, more uh, you know, bedrooms, hospital rooms, or should we be concentrating on getting more staff, more people into the, into the business so that we can uh, help people where, they're, where they are and not have to uh, put them into uh, facilities or put them on waiting lists? There, the, the evidence is strong, strong I think, to, tilts toward the, the latter, because in the United States, uh, where there is not the same shortage of bricks and mortar, there is an equally acute shortage of, of people in the home health industry, in the care industry, even for-profit industry, are experiencing massive shortages, shortfalls in labor in, in, in people that can do this. Yeah, the, it, that is, as, as they keep telling us, it's a worldwide problem. We have some breaking news, uh, a little bit off topic. So Ontario has passed Bill 23 amid criticism from cities and conservation authorities uh, is saying uh, the criticism is that it will leave municipalities short billions of dollars, increase property taxes, and reduce or even eliminate the role of conservation authorities. So, uh, David, you were mentioning heavy hand. Yeah, watch, heavy hand. watch my next move is kind of the theme here. Right? Yeah. yeah, yep. Uh, so uh, that, of course, has gone through with the majority. There was never any doubt no. there. Yeah. Never any doubt there. Uh, do you see, as we we don't have too much time left, but do you see any implications for the older demo with well, uh, with those changes? One it, of the things that we're hearing more and more from our CART members, we talk to them across the country, is their huge concern for uh, uh, for conservation, uh, for uh, uh, leaving the world in a better way than they have found it for their for their grandchildren. It's an issue that hasn't uh, hasn't come up high on the list before, but it is growing, and I I believe that the government will get uh, real pushback. From from older Ontarians who are very concerned about losing our our green space and more more concerned, I think, than the government thought they would be. It's been a kind of a, a hidden a hidden concern for some time now. Well, yeah, and and uh, part of the issue is, you know, their argument now is, well, we're taking some away, but we're putting more back in different places. I mean. He promised not to touch that. So that is, and, and there's no new situation, right? So 
I don't know. The, the, it, it just, um, with this government, it just sort of feels like uh, uh, the hammer is, is coming down. And uh, I don't know. But well, they have a problem, though, is that they, the hammer is coming down, but everything is a series of discrete, separate measures. And there yeah. doesn't appear to be a unifying, okay, I'm going to do this thing. Here's what it's going to mean for the homeless or the housing shortage. Here's what it's going to mean for affordable housing. On the other hand, here is where the alternative green belt or whatever will be. And this piecemeal uh, information that just leaves themselves so open to highly focused criticism on, well, but, on these individual components, and they don't have an answer, a coherent answer. David, I have to disagree with you okay. because if you if if you as a stakeholder or a critic look at a holistic strategy, then you can say stuff about it. But the fact that everything comes out in dribs That's and drabs, it's exactly. much harder. But I, this is for people who might oppose what they're doing. Okay. It is much harder, much more opaque, much harder to see uh, exactly what's going on. You have to remember, first well, of all. True. And, and um, you know, they just keep reannouncing things. Uh, so I think that I think that's a strategy, not a weak point in in okay, uh, their. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. And you know, buried in that announcement you just read is uh, the elimination. It sounds like of the conservation authorities, and they're you know they're hugely productive in the communities where they operate all across the province. They have all kinds of volunteer hours put in them managing these uh, uh, facilities. And what's what's going to replace them? What's going to happen to those uh, beautiful places that we we walk in and enjoy? in our in our in our province it's a it's a it's a, uh, it's a signal that uh, is not going to go down lightly with a lot of people okay you know um i'm on a, a neighborhood group and we were really excited the original of that bill said that neighborhood groups and neighbors could not appeal a decision there's now one body the ontario land tribunal and uh, it it's mostly <laughs> developers or whatever. Uh, so it said they could not appeal a decision. And this was rescinded in committee. They can appeal. And uh, we thought, okay, good. That's a small victory. However, that decision also uh, said that uh, the losing party at any Ontario land tribunal should pay costs. So that's going to be a huge deterrent. So, I mean... It's cynical. It's very cynical. Look, we're giving you... You can always appeal. Yeah. We're letting you appeal. And so they look good, but in fact, uh, the deck is rigged. The deck <laughs> is rigged. I'm, I'm just going to take a very quick call from Beth in Toronto. Hi, Beth. Hi, Libby. Um, I'm just... Um, I know you're talking about the land now, but I just want to go back to seniors. Um, just quickly, I looked after my mom for 13 years in my home. The, the solution to me seems really very simple. Support home care. Give yep. the people what they need to take care of their loved ones. A lot of people want to do that, but they just don't feel like they're adequate to do that, that they can't do it. They don't have the skills or the knowledge Give them the nurses and the PSWs to support them in their homes, and they'll keep their loved ones with them, because that's what seniors want. They want to stay in the home, and they want to be with their loved ones. Okay, but thank they, you. But they can't do it alone. They can't do it alone. They need the support, and that's where the government should be putting their money, not into long-term care, but into home care. Okay, thanks, Carp Beth. Yeah, we absolutely agree. We, we agree, but... Uh, <laughs> We we need both. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. We're out of time. So, guys, thank you so much, Peter Mugridge, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. Thank you, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thanks. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a vaccine that's being studied against RSV. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about RSV, the respiratory virus, uh, and it's been hitting small children primarily. And uh, it, it has caused uh, the crisis in our hospitals to worsen. Well, authorities expect the next wave of this to affect older people. The good news, Health Canada is reviewing a vaccine designed for seniors to better protect them from RSV. Uh, and now let's go to Dr. Dawn Bodish, the Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity. Hello, Dr. Bodish. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So uh, I'm assuming that this must have been under development for a long time, because for most of us, it's the first time we've ever heard of RSV and poof, uh, Health Canada is studying vaccine. Absolutely. So what's interesting about RSV is it's a virus that really affects the very young and the very old. So in the very, very young, um, especially as premature babies, have always been at high risk. So they have one treatment where they can get some antibodies injected into them to help protect them during that one period of time. But some early vaccine trials in the 1990s were not uh, not only were they not effective, they actually didn't seem to make um, babies worse. So for a long time, there was a pause on on vaccine research for RSV because of this, the complexities of this particular virus. But the good news is the RSV virus, even though it's completely unrelated to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, it has a bit of the a same sort of structural feature. In the COVID vaccine, there's this thing called the spike protein. The spike protein is what the virus uses to get into our cells. And RSV has a similar protein on its surface. And as it turns out, the same messenger RNA technology that works so well in the COVID vaccine looks like it's extremely effective uh, because it sort of targets a protein with the same structure on the RSV uh, virus. So as a consequence, there's good news for both the very young and the very old. It looks like this technology will be able to be adapted so that we have vaccines that are tailored towards kids, but also towards adults and older adults. Mm -hmm. But we'll have one for older adults first? Uh, in general, the approval process for adults is a little bit faster than the approval process for children. One of the reasons for that is it's just easier to consent adults into trials. Um, you know, any adult can consent to be in a trial, so those trials must go, tend to go much more quickly. And with children, there's some uh, funny math about dosing schedules. So babies less than six months, uh, children under two, children under five, and then children five to 12, all tend to be evaluated as separate groups because it's not as simple as just scaling the amount of the active ingredient to the size of the person, there's specific quirks of the young immune system that mean the dosing has to be uh, very carefully evaluated. Whereas with adults, it's usually one dose. You just find the dose that provides sufficient immunity. And sometimes with older adults, you need a little bit more uh, of the uh, active ingredient. But Compared to dealing with dosing regimens for children, it's comparatively simple. Where is Health Canada at in the process? My understanding is that they're reviewing these. The trials were presented at a few major international meetings, so the scientific communities had the chance to look at the data. And now the data packages that's with Health Canada will uh, investigate uh, all that data and look at it independently um, and look for uh, data on the safety, how well the people reacted to it. But to be honest, the data that's been publicly presented has been really, really positive. So the expectation is it may not take too long to um, approve this vaccine, but we have to keep in mind that there will be challenges to actually getting vaccines into the circulation in Canada. Uh, what people don't understand, because the COVID vaccines were a little bit unusual, is that generally once the vaccines approved by Health Canada and the National Advisory Council on Immunization makes its recommendations about who should get it, when they should get it, when the doses should be available, each province then undergoes its own review and decides how it wants to implement the vaccine. So just to give you an example, uh, influenza vaccines differ across the country about 
what age groups or what disease conditions can get them. Is it free or is it not free for people under 65? Um, and sometimes uh, the provinces, uh, some will decide to implement and some won't. So unlike COVID, which was a national emergency, so there was a lot of unity in how we were going to move forward with these, although some province-to-province variation, we still have to wait for the various provinces to come up with their own plan about how they're going to implement Is there going to be an issue with supply? The good thing about the way this uh, technology is generated is it should be fairly easy to supply it. And because there's not the same urgent need for a massive rollout everywhere, I can't imagine that the supply will be particularly problematic. I personally am so excited because RSV outbreaks in places like long-term care, retirement communities, aggregate living, congregate living communities um, can have really devastating effects. And all the things that led to COVID outbreaks, the challenges with ventilation, the crowding, uh, the part-time staff working in many different homes and bringing their infections with them have also led to RSV outbreaks. And we have no tools other than masking, working on ventilation status, and, and those sorts of things to prevent it. So the exciting news is this is really the first time we can help reduce that burden uh, once we get the approval and these vaccines rolled out. Do you recall uh, the numbers from the trial, what kind of effectiveness it showed? That's a good question. So one of the things that's challenging in RSV infection, and in fact, most vaccine trials, is waiting to find people who naturally get infected. And in a way, it's a shame the trial wasn't running this year because there are just so many infections right now. Uh, I can't remember offhand what the numbers were, but the um, uh, protection from serious infection and hospitalization was in the 90s. So it was 90% plus, which is excellent for this kind of infection because even with influenza, we know that the vaccine efficacy never sounds very good. In a good year, it's 60%. But the protection against hospitalization and severe outcomes is really where those vaccines shine. And so the expectation is the RSV vaccine will be uh, that high. One of the things we also don't know is, will we need annual boosters? And that is one of those things that's hard to predict until we get uh, the vaccine into arms of people. And, and see how quickly that waning immunity happens. And uh, will you be able to get it along with, I, I mean, I know people who got their flu vaccine and their uh, booster shots together. Yeah. So uh, is it there absolutely no issue with adding another vaccine? Yeah, so the good news is that uh, we predicted that we'll be fine. Generally what happens in the first year or two of a rollout is the recommendation, uh, unless the, the manufacturer provides data specifically testing co-administration of multiple vaccines is to spread them out by three weeks. And that's for no biological reason. It's not because having two vaccines at the same time is a problem. It's because you really want to monitor side effects really, really carefully. So in the COVID rollout, if you remember in the first year, almost two years, um, the recommendation was no other vaccines, at least within three weeks. And again, there was no biological reason. It was just so that if there was a side effect, people would be able to track it and trace it back to specifically the COVID vaccine and not something that was happening at the same time. So unless the manufacturers can provide some trial data where they co-administer, the usual recommendation is for at least one year uh to do them separately and then monitor really carefully, reevaluate, make sure there's no safety concerns, nothing unusual happens. And then at that point, uh, they can often be rolled in. But I will say the manufacturer of this vaccine, as well as many other vaccines, is now working on combination vaccines. So using the mRNA technology to include COVID, uh, circulating influenza strain and RSV at the same time in the same vaccine. And I think that will be a godsend because the fewer times you have to go to the pharmacist, the more likely you are to go and get yourself protected. Okay. We look forward to it. Dr. Don Bodish, thanks so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Anytime. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. We are going to take another break. And as of yesterday, Canada has a new policy, a new attitude towards China. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Canada has a new Indo-Pacific policy. It marks a huge change as our government now sees Beijing more as an adverse an adversary than a friend. The document uses blunt language, describing China as a, quote, increasingly disruptive global power. And the strategy also commits $2.3 billion over five years to expand military, security, trade, and diplomatic ties with other nations in the area. So uh, is that about time, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau has faced a lot of criticism over the years as being very soft on China, pro-China. Um, what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Charles Burton, Senior Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and an expert on Canada-China relations, as well as Dr. Jeremy Paltio. Professor of Politics, Government, and Foreign Policies of Asia at Carleton University. Thank you very much for joining us, both of you. Thank you. Great to be with you. And and, uh, hi, Charles. (laughs) <laughs> Let us begin with with you, Doctor Paltiel. So, is this uh, is this about time, or uh, what's behind this? Well, I mean, I think there are two two things. Is one is that generally public opinion in Canada has turned pretty dramatically against China in recent years, particularly after the, the, the three M's or the two Michaels incident. Um, secondly, the United States policy has also shifted quite dramatically towards viewing China as a a, a strategic competitor. And that, too, um, is very much uh, in minds of Ottawa policymakers because they want to be a good ally to our senior ally. So these are the two things that that are basically motivating this change. Uh, Charles, do you see anything else behind this? Well, I'm not convinced that that we're actually going to do things all that differently. Um, you know, certainly I think Jeremy is right. When Secretary of State Anthony Blinken came to Ottawa last month, um, we announced that we would be um, engaging in a strategic dialogue on the Indo-Pacific with the United States to further align approaches uh, to the region. So, you know, that it certainly is motivated by a concern that if we don't um, get into line with the United States, Australia, UK, and and other allies on China that that could impact on our relationship with the United States. Maybe um, you know the, the Five Eyes Consortium could shift to to uh, three with just Australia, UK, and and US as we've seen in their in their security consortium in Indo Pacific. I would have preferred if we'd used the language strategic competitor rather than increasingly disruptive global power. I'm I'm skeptical that this is going to work in the sense that we can maintain our trade relations with China um, and uh, collaborate with China on important global issues like climate change, global poverty, uh, putting the brakes on North Korea's, you know, really terrifyingly dangerous nuclear missile program. Um, if we're not going to be appeasing China by turning a blind eye to the Uyghur genocide and human rights and security issues. I think we could be a bit naive on that. But the strategy has no mention of uh, genocide. And there's nothing in there to suggest any substantive Canadian action on the Chinese police operations in Canada. No addressing of Canada's pervasive espionage to obtain the dual-use military technologies. But, you know, they are promising to put more China expertise into CSIS, the RCMP, and, and our embassies and, and, uh, and global affairs. So, I mean, there's some promising things there. But I, I just don't, I think we're still, you know, of two minds as to how to manage China. Is China really just, uh, um, you know, a place that we should focus on promoting Canadian prosperity through trade investment, or should we be more concerned about China's activities inside Canada that corrupt our democracy and China's systematic attempt to 
to um, debase the international rules-based order in the UN and and WTO. And I, I'm not sure that that debate I, is over I, I would in like Ottawa. To, to take issue with some, but, but the last part, I think that the the strategy itself, if you read it carefully, is very much focused on deterring China and putting uh, Canadian security in the first place. That's front and center in the in the strategic document. Um, and actually, there is almost no suggestion, and I asked this question to Foreign Affairs today, there is actually no new channels of engagement put opened up in terms of Canada and China relations. And no, moreover, uh, even in the trade, the tone of it, both in the, in the document itself and in trade and investment, in, in the document itself and in the um, Minister Jolie's uh, and other uh, government people think the, the the word on that is to actually to caution Canadians against that um, businessman saying that we can't guarantee your security in China, uh, and that, moreover that existing uh, areas of of cooperation are going to be looked at on more um, stringently. Every MOU is going to be looked at. So in fact, the tone is distinctly negative in terms of looking at China as a place for opportunity for trade and investment. What about... Uh, um, You know, that's right in the document. What about uh, this uh, uh, breaking story that the Chinese interfered in the last election? We haven't heard much from Trudeau on that, and we just had a Chinese spy arrested. Well, there's no question that that they have... you know, we, we would like to see the outcome of this of this question. There's no question that there have been increasing Chinese activities in, in cyber espionage. Actually, I would say that given the um, the United States policies now on on withholding technology and Canadian ones also in terms of trying to limit technology cooperation, you'll probably see much more predatory activity from China today than even before, because if they can't get it legally, they will try to get it illegally. That's, you know, that's just the, the plain fact of the matter. But no, nonetheless, uh, the election interference thing, I mean, it looks like um, the report is not quite clear I mean, so, uh, about whether China financed these people directly. No, there's no question that there are the Chinese government has a policy of trying to encourage people to tell China's story well, and there probably would, it seems like there was some coordination of supporting certain, uh, to help support certain candidates who might be, uh, adopt a more use favorable to China. This is, we're not talking here about, uh, uh, Russian-style interference, which is actually disrupting the whole electoral process, but really trying to target things towards people who will basically support the Chinese point of the Chinese government's point of view and the Chinese Communist Party's point of view that the Chinese Communist Party represents the aspirations of all Chinese, uh, and that is uh, something that we've seen in other places, in Australia, uh, and uh, you know, obviously. If, if any money was given from China, this is illegal, and the, both the diplomats should be sent home, and the people who received the money should be charged under the Elections Act. Let's take a call from Phil in Oakville. Hi, Phil. Hi, how are you? I, uh, I'm a little concerned. Suddenly, I see Chinese uh, in the streets protesting, somewhat like, although I wasn't agreeing with people parking trucks in front of Trudeau's house, Agreeing with an element in our Western society that seems to be at odds with this drive towards a socialist kind of globalist economy um, to see a, a Chinese that's not why they were uh, that's not why they were demonstrating. Thanks for your call. Um, yeah. So what about those big protests not seen since Tiananmen Square? And it was against uh, some of really draconian COVID restrictions where people literally could not get leave their homes and get enough food and, and all of that. So Chinese people I mean, have I had enough. That I mean, one is, there's no is question about, about it. You Wait, know, one at a time, like Charles. Um, you know, the Tiananmen incident in 1989 was about wanting the party to adopt uh, democracy, um, to engage in reform. It wasn't about... Um, getting, you know, having the party uh, cease to be the government of China. And this demonstrations, they're calling for 
the removal of uh, Party General Secretary Xi Jinping and seeing as he really, um, you know, has taken over the party as a kind of Stalinist emperor for life kind of figure, I think what they're expressing is the desire for for a different government that better reflects the aspirations of Chinese people and and um, allows for more uh, freedom. So, you know, the, the current movement is is possibly more serious than, than previous demonstrations. If the government cracks down on them too hard, then I think that opens up the floodgate for for more popular discontent. If the government doesn't crack down on them that hard, then it allows for the development of a, an underground that could start to corrode the system from within. So, I mean, it's still early days, and it's hard to know how widespread it is. The restrictions on information coming out of China restrictions in our journalists are making it hard for us to to really come to terms with it. But this does seem to me to be potentially quite a turning point in uh, the history of of the the party's rule. And Mr. Xi himself, who I think has probably over over exceeded his bounds. Uh, Dr. Paltiel, and we only have uh, we don't have very much time left. I was surprised that they eased the restrictions so quickly, as as opposed to taking out the tanks. Um, what well, they, do you think? They haven't eased the restrictions that much. I mean, the restrictions on COVID are targeted uh, based on the um, uh, based on what where there are positive tests. Um, these are these are actually. Demonstrations against these, those particular methods and the way they've been applied. Um, they, they haven't yet cracked. They haven't cracked down enormously and widespreadly because uh, there are because demonstrations are so widespread because the effect on the, the the populace would be quite negative and also the effect on the economy. The zero COVID policy is negatively affecting the Chinese economy. If there were to be a massive crackdown now, the Chinese economy would go into deep recession. So, uh, do you do you agree with Charles that this is a grave danger to uh, Xi? It is definitely a, a, a challenge to him, and um, we'll have to see in the next coming day how they deal with it. I think that many people in China were disappointed by the last party congress and and the fact that they have not been any more releases in the in the COVID strategy, and people are are basically fed up. They've been living under lock and key for about three years. Okay. Um, Charles, uh, very quickly, what would you like to leave us with? 20 seconds. Well, I think that, you know, we really have to get more realistic about our, our China policy. The, the strategic um, uh, plan doesn't have enough money in it to significantly achieve what Madame Jolie talks about, which is Arctic defense and a significant contribution to the defense of the Indo-Pacific, but, you know, it's a starting point, and I think our allies will surely be uh, continuing to put pressure on us to to do more, and, uh, you know, that's got to be a good thing. So, uh, Dr. Paltiel, 20 seconds, last 20 seconds to you. I, th- I think this is a, a shift in Canadian policy. I, I'm actually heartened by the fact that we're now taking the Asia-Pacific and Indo-Pacific more seriously, and we'll, and China, change may come in China, so it's 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 an interesting time. Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, Charles Burton and Dr. Jeremy Paltiel. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.